Today I bring to a close the series that I have been in over the past several months now. It's a series that I called The Case for Grace. The signature message for this series was a message I preached called Forsaking the Hybrid Gospel. It came very, very early in the series, and it began to sprinkle, kind of tint every single one of the messages that would follow it with the breadcrumbs of grace invigorating and invoking and emboldening its listeners to, number one, quit feeding on the law. Stop feeding on the law. And to quit wavering between two opinions and to find our way back to daddy's tender loving hands, a place of rest. But now looking back, I can see that this series was rightly named The Case for Grace, Forsaking the Hybrid Gospel. Every time I step into a pulpit, whether it's here or there or wherever it might be, I'm acutely aware that I am a dispenser. What I say matters. I can dispense words that harm people, and I can dispense words that heal people. I can dispense words that are hurtful or words that are helpful. I can dispense words that burn, or I can dispense words that bless. I can dispense words that build up, and I can dispense words that tear down. Did you know that words alone can set a person's life on a trajectory? In other words, the listener. It can set them on a trajectory for absolute terror or absolute triumph. At this church, we minister the triumphant grace message. We too were perfectly named Triumphant Grace Ministries. So today, it's my pleasure, it's my honor, it's my joy, it's my privilege to minister the final message of this series. It's a message I'm calling, Discarding the A la Carte Gospel. And what I want us to see through the message today is this. We have a perfect salvation. We can tear down the fences and we can fully trust in Jesus' finished work. If you're trusting in anything beyond that, you're going to get disappointed. Now, the word discarding, it's synonymous with words like abandoning, forsaking, deserting, disowning, ditching, renouncing. So they all mean the same thing. And these synonyms communicate a message to me that the discarding of the a la carte gospel does not happen by accident. In other words, we make a decision. It's an intentional thing. It's an intentional act. It's like the burning of a bridge. When you realize you've walked across a bridge, and that bridge is the only way home, but when you're on the other side, you burn the bridge, 
you have concluded I'm not going back that way. Would you agree with that? You're confident that that is not the way I'm going back. So it's a decision that one makes intentionally. The more our hearts become established in grace, we can come to the conclusion, we come to the realization that there are things that we just simply don't need to hold on to. We can let go of them. If you sit under the finished work message long enough, you know what you're going to discover? Even if the bridge remains intact, there's nothing left to go back to. When you come into the revelation of Jesus and his finished work, Jesus and this gospel of his love, this gospel of his peace, this gospel of his grace, there is nothing left to go back to. I don't know how a person could get bored or even get just satisfied. It is so beautiful. Now, I said this to a person recently. It just flowed out of my mouth. And I thought, wow, that was kind of cool. Grace is not like an on-off switch. Now, I'm looking at those switches over there on the wall, and I realized that that switch has two positions, up, down, on, off. And grace is not like that. I wish it were, (laughs) that somebody would get it the first time they hear it. But I said to my friend, grace is more like a dimmer switch with a thousand different positions, a thousand different clicks. The more you turn it, the more it rotates in your heart, the brighter the light becomes. That's the way it is with the virtues of grace. As they begin to take residence, as they begin to grow a root system in our hearts, do you know what happens? There's a brightness. There's a joy that's released. Because we realize we're just trusting Jesus. And as one becomes established in what we would call the true gospel of grace, that is Jesus plus nothing, friends. It's not Jesus plus your pitiful works. It's Jesus plus nothing for your salvation. And as one becomes more established in that truth, in that reality, do you know what's going to happen? That person will find it effortless to discard the menu that allows for an a la carte gospel. What was once thought of, boy, that would be impossible. That would be difficult. That would be hard. Will be easy. That menu will be easy to fold for the last time and discard. Your straddling the fence days of law and grace will cease as the case for grace, forsaking the hybrid gospel, and the mystery of Christ is revealed. What is the mystery of Christ? The mystery of Christ is Christ alone. Christ is sufficient. Grace is sufficient. Christ is enough. I trust Jesus. In Merriam-Webster's dictionary, I want you to see how they define the word straddle. It says to favor two apparently opposite sides. In other words, you can't let go of one for the other. You just favor them both. 
Can you imagine a soldier who one day puts on one country's uniform and he fights all day long and then the next day he puts on the opposing country's uniform and he fights against the other side and then the next day he changes uniforms again? Why? Because he can't make up his mind. Maybe he knows somebody from that other country. Maybe he has relatives in that other country and he feels sorry for them or something like that. But do you understand what Stradland is beginning to communicate here now, right? Stradland. It says to be noncommittal in regard to an issue. And this is where the body of Christ gets stuck, folks. They're just noncommittal to a particular issue. How many of you have heard or used the expression, he's straddling, she's straddling the fence? Come on. How many of you have said that before? How many of you have heard that before? They're straddling the fence. We've heard that before, right? Straddling the fence means that you refuse, that person refuses to make a decision about something as to which side of the fence you take your stand, which side of the fence you plant your flag. In other words, in the same way Merriam-Webster is defining straddle, you lend favor to opposing sides, the opposite sides, refusing to commit to one and forsake the other. That's called straddling the fence. The reason most marriages fall into shambles is because husbands and wives refuse to commit to one and forsake all others. Instead, they continue to straddle the proverbial a la carte fence. An a la carte relationship means that they can have whatever they want and they can pay for each item individually. That's what a la carte means. So I want to ask you a question. Is this the marriage or is this the salvation that you signed up for? Is that the salvation you signed up for? Is that the kind of marriage you would want? Are you really wanting to pay for each one of your sins individually? Do you want to beat yourself up every time you fail? Do you want to wallow in fear and condemnation? Do you take pleasure living in a cesspool of guilt and shame? Now see, the reason I'm asking these questions is because this is precisely where a vast number of believers live on a daily basis. This is their struggle, daily. And if you care anything about people, you'll care about that. And this is why we keep dispensing this gospel of grace over the airwaves, into their hearts, across the phones, across the table, is because we care. Friends, we can continue to pick and choose from the 613 choices on the menu of the law. That's how many laws there were for Israel. They had 613 laws called the written code, the Jewish code, that they lived by in order to be in correct relationship with God. It didn't require faith, although sometimes they use faith. All it required was obedience. That's it. So we can continue to pick from the 613 choices on the menu of the law and adhere to each law individually, or we can quit straddling the fence of an a la carte gospel and allow Jesus' 
finished work of grace to do what it was designed and what it's supposed to do. Amen? He paid for each. He paid for every one of our sins on the cross. There was nothing that he didn't pay for there. All your sins were in advance. He paid for your sins all at one time, all at once. Now, will you commit to allowing Jesus' blood to close the menu on the law? Just close the menu on the law once and for all time. I've done that. My heart's become established in grace. I don't need the law as my helper. I have the Holy Spirit as my helper. He's my helper. And he does a fantastic job helping me. See, so often we think we're the Holy Spirit's helper. No, friends, he is our helper. Isn't that what Jesus said? But how many of you personally, myself included, have lived a life, we can almost go back to a time in our life where we felt like we were more of the Holy Spirit's helper than he was ours. Come on. Listen, the Holy Spirit, he's just as powerful as God. He's just as powerful as Jesus. And he is our helper. Helpers don't just stand off in the corner and spectate. Watch what you're doing. Helpers get involved. They teach you things. They're mentors. The Holy Spirit is a great mentor. If you've learned anything in your Christian walk, it's because the Holy Spirit is allowing you to learn. He's speaking into your heart and teaching you things. So he is definitely our helper. Jesus is not paying for our sins on an a la carte basis as we commit them. Some people believe that, that, okay, you commit a sin, now Jesus is going to pay for that sin. No, friends, Jesus already paid for your sins. He forgave all your sins on the cross. All of our sins were paid for through his once for all sacrifice. So let's ask the question, why do we feel the need to personally pay for or beat ourselves up for our a la carte sins, the sins that we continue to commit. Why would we do something like that? I'll tell you why we do that. Because it's a learned behavior. It's a taught behavior. You're not born with that behavior. Babies don't worry about sin, do they? They're not really committing any. And so as we grow in life, we develop in life, we're taught things, we learn things. And so one of the behaviors that is taught is that we have to pay for our sins. What does that look like? Well, coming to an altar, sobbing, crying. Now listen, I'm not making light of sin. If you're sinning, stop it. It hurts you. But I'm just saying Jesus paid for our sins or he didn't. He paid for our sins. They've all been taken away. This is the learned behavior. And where did we learn this behavior? We learn this behavior through an amalgam of mixing the old covenant with the new covenant. We learned this insidious behavior through a hybrid gospel. That is a gospel that mixes the old covenant law with the new covenant of grace. And it's so easy to do. See, I often like to think about it like this, and you've heard me say this illustration before. A deck of playing cards and a deck of old maid cards look very different, don't they? 
And so you would realize right out of the gate, there's a problem if you drew an ace of diamonds and a king of clubs and then the old maid. You'd go, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. What is going on here? But it's so insidious when it comes to the law. We allow the law to operate and work in our lives, in our heart, not even knowing why. Because it's a learned behavior. It's already got a root system in our lives. But God wants us to walk away from that. God wants us to live free lives, lives of rest in him, to be able to say, I trust you, Jesus. Do you know how many people are mad at God? Now, if you're mad at God, go ahead and be mad at God. God ain't going anywhere. And God is not going to be mad at you because you're mad at him. I've heard many, many hundreds of people over the years say, I'm mad at God. Now, look, if you are, that's fine. I don't think anything less of you. I can't think of a day I've ever been mad at God. I always knew the problem was on my end, not his end. Because I understand people can carry being mad at God for a long time. They can be mad at God for health issues. They can be mad at God for people that have died in their family. Fine, he's got big shoulders, big, strong, broad shoulders. He can take it. It has its root system in the old covenant that when bad things happen, it's because we've been bad. It's like this karma thing. No, friends, that's not it. We live in a fallen world, and that's why bad things happen. God is a good God. He's only good. He's always good. He's forever good. There's no darkness in him, no shadow of turning, no evil in God. He's always good. He's always for you. Holy Spirit is our helper. So we have this tendency to beat ourselves up. Again, it's a learned, taught behavior. So discarding the a la carte gospel is, listen, this is the way the Holy Spirit said to me, it's the starting block. How many of you know when a runner gets down to run a race, he gets into something called a starting block? He can't just stand anywhere. She can't stand anywhere they want. They all are in a starting block. This is the starting block of understanding and entering into his rest. And that's what life's about. We shouldn't be a bunch of nerves, our nerves all tied up in a bundle and a ball somewhere so that we can't even communicate our heart to people because we're just on pins and needles all the time. So this is where his rest comes from, is us making this intentional decision to be able to let go of the law. I wish it was just as easy as reaching into your pocket and grabbing something and throwing it away, but it's not. It is this slow, it is this rotation of this dimmer switch, if you will, that gets brighter and brighter the more you listen to this finished work of Jesus Christ. The starting block for that is simply letting go of that, entering into his rest. The scriptures tell us that by one sacrifice, come on, one sacrifice, not two, not a future sacrifice, by one sacrifice, this is Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. It says by one sacrifice, this is my favorite passage in the Bible, one sacrifice, do I sound like a broken record? Come on, by one sacrifice, he has already made perfect, come on, forever, those that are made holy. Now, that's you, that's me, that's us, that's we. You are perfect in his eyes. You say, do I feel perfect? Doesn't matter how you feel. You are perfect. Do I always act perfect? Doesn't matter. 
You're perfect in his eyes. How do I know? The scriptures tell us. As he is, so are we in this world. You are perfect. Where? In your spirit, the place that it counts. The real you, the inner man, that guy is perfect. You can't improve upon him. You can't make him an ounce better or an inch better. He is perfect. Because so many people have avoided that book of Hebrews that I was talking about earlier, they don't come across that scripture. Remember, they saw those scary verses in chapter 6 and chapter 10 and those scary ones, you know, and they said, I'm not going there anymore. And they forgot to find that verse that tells you your true identity, that by one sacrifice, he has already made perfect. Come on, forever. Not till your next sin. Forever. You've been made perfect forever. Boy, that ought to make your chin come up. That ought to make you walk with a boldness. You ought to walk like a lion everywhere you go. Not arrogantly, but confidently knowing who you are in Christ. You have been made perfect. How long? How long? Come on. That's it. Forever. Those that have been made holy. Have you been made holy? See, the church will teach you that you're made holy by what you do and don't do. That is a lie, friends. That is an untruth. How do I know that? Well, back in that book of Hebrews again. Chapter 10 and verse 10, the scriptures tell us that we were made holy by his body on the cross. That's how you got your holiness. You couldn't make yourself holy if you had an eon, a million, billion, trillion centuries to make yourself holy. I don't care what you practice, you would fall short. But we have been made holy. We have been made righteous. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those that are made holy. Boy, I didn't want to tarry there as long as I did, but I get excited about that part of it right there. There are no sins left to forgive. All is forgiven. It's been taken away. It's not just under the blood. It's been removed. It's been taken away. So, a leg on each side of the fence. Come on, see yourself. Get this picture now, right? What's your fence look like? You got barbed wire on top of it? You're in trouble, right? Razor wire, you're in trouble, right? (laughs) You're in trouble. Come on, talk to me now. Oh, get yourself an old picket fence. I don't care what it is. But just get yourself. See that in your mind right now. You got one leg on each side of the fence. That's called straddling the fence, right? Let me ask you a question. Why would a believer, come on, I'm talking to the body of Christ. I'm talking to believers. I'm talking to Christians. Why would a believer straddle the fence when it comes to a life lived by grace or by living the law. In other words, you can't make up your mind. You're oscillating back and forth. Law and grace. Why would you want to straddle a fence like that? I'll tell you why. Because they were taught an a la carte gospel. 
They were taught that there are things on each side of the fence that are necessary, that you're going to need them. It's your spare tire, if you will. There are things on both sides of the fence uh, that are necessary to maintain your salvation, so don't let go of anything. And they're spiritual leaders. I'm talking about the pastors, the teachers, the prophets, the ministers of this world. They're spiritual leaders. You know what they've done? They've already predetermined what is best for them. And you know what they do? They write it into church doctrine. And they put it on their mission statement on their website. And they've got their little pamphlets that they hand out in their church. And I'm not opposed to this kind of stuff. But what I'm telling you is, you take on the belief system that the people above you have. Now, if I'm saying something that doesn't resonate in your heart, you listen longer. Remember, go back to the dimmer switch. It will get brighter and brighter the more you listen to it. They've already hung the laws in their mission statement, and this has become their church bylaws, their church doctrine, if you will. And you know what? They expect that everybody is going to live by them. You're going to follow these. You're our congregation. You're going to live by these laws. Many believers are taught that they need to live from a mixture of Old Covenant and New Covenant. You won't hear those words coming from the pulpit necessarily, but what's being taught, what subtly the message is, you can tell that's what's being taught. It's an untruth, friends. It's not true. There are no scriptures that will corroborate such gibberish. They're not there. There are no scriptures like that. I've got a Greek word for all of that nonsense, and it's called baloney, okay? <laughs> Amen. That's what it is. It's just a bunch of baloney, friends. It's made up stuff. Friends, there is no lasting freedom apart from discarding the a la carte gospel. The a la carte gospel is the gospel that insists that believers live by some portion of the law. Some are more strict than others, but it's going to say that you're going to live by something in those 613 commandments. Yet the Apostle Paul, come on, he wrote most of the New Testament, right? He's the one who had that up-close personal relationship one-on-one with Jesus as he taught him in the Arabian desert. And the Apostle Paul never, ever, ever instructed his, in his letters for the church to live by the law. You cannot find it there. I've been through Paul's letters. I love Paul's letters. I preach from them all the time. You will not find him anywhere instructing the church to live by the law. Conversely, he says the law, you've got to get away from it, friends. This is what he said. He said the law is the ministry of condemnation. Paul said the the law is like a minister. And that minister brings death. It brings death. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, we find these words. Look what he says. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing, right? He said, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous. Okay. He's saying, we know, not we guess, not we think. This is not a best guess. The Apostle Paul, if anybody understood the law, it was him. He was raised in it. He was taught in it. He was tutored in it. He could speak the Torah by memory. Word for word, the first five books of the Bible, he could tell you by memory. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous. 
The law, there's two words. There's mitzvah, which means a commandment, and there's mitzvat, which means the commandments. Okay? And so when the Apostle Paul is using this here, he is literally saying all the commandments. We know that all of the commandments are not made for the righteous. Friends, this is liberating to understand this. You shouldn't have to come to church just to get your fix. I'm happy if that happens. But what we're supposed to do is to go out there. When we leave here, when we're going to work, when we're going to the grocery store, when we're calling a friend on the phone, this is where we're supposed to be living life and seeing good days celebrating the fact that we're at rest, celebrating the fact that we've been forgiven once for all. So he's talking about the whole law. You say, wait a minute now. In that scripture, it says the law is. That kind of sounds singular to me. No, friends, the law is plural. If I say the Chicago Bears, you know I'm not talking about one person, don't you? That would be a Chicago Bear. It's all of it. The law is a whole. It's all the commandments. That's why James would say, whoever keeps the whole law, mitzvah. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Come on. Anybody done that lately? Part of the law was you can't eat pork. Have you had any pork sandwiches lately? You any pork chops lately? You any bacon lately? No? Did you do any work on Friday night from Friday night to Saturday night? Because if you did, you broke the Sabbath. There's 613 like that. And so the Apostle James would write, for whoever keeps the whole law, mitzvah, and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. What was James, what was he saying when he wrote that? Was he out of his mind? What was he saying? He was telling us that the law is a whole. It's not a half. It's not a part. There is no a la carte salvation even under the law. That's what he's telling you. There is no picking and choosing which ones you want to obey. Even under the law, you had to obey all of it at all times. If you even break one, even for one second, he said you're guilty of breaking the whole law because it's an all or nothing proposition when it comes to the law. You can't just pick and choose. No, it doesn't work that way, friends. It's all or nothing. There is no straddling the fence when it comes to the law. The law is an all or nothing proposition. But when one turns to Jesus, his finished work of grace, and trust in his grace alone for their salvation, the bridge to go back to the law is burned. There's nothing left to retreat to. The written code, the scriptures tell us, was nailed to the cross. Jesus was not only nailed to the cross, you were not only nailed to the cross, but the written code was nailed to the cross with Christ. I want to ask you a few questions. Come on. Think about this. Come on. In the quietness of your own heart, are you righteous. Think about that. Are you righteous? Have you put your faith in Jesus? You see, when a person puts their faith in Jesus, they are at once. Come on, let me use a synonym. Immediately. 
straightway in the King James. Instantly. In the twinkling of an eye. When a person puts their faith in Christ, they are at once made the righteousness of God in him. It happens that fast. So, back to that question, are you righteous? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Then that makes you righteous. We were made the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, the answer is yes, I am righteous. So then, how is it that believers can look at the scripture, that one you've seen on the board, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, how can they look at the scripture that Paul wrote to Timothy until they're blue in the face and still not see that they're not under the law? How can you do that? It says right there, we also know that the law is not made for the righteous. Now, I just ask you, are you righteous? You said, yes, you put your trust in Jesus. That makes you righteous. He's made you the righteousness of God in him, right? And then you can look at that scripture right there and still say, well, I don't know if I'm righteous. How does that happen? Because of what you've been taught. You have this mixture of things going around in your head. You are righteous, friends. They've been blinded by an a la carte gospel. They have straddled the same fence that their grandparents and their parents straddled. Folks, in Christ, there are no fences left to straddle. I want you to get that in your heart this morning. In Christ, the fences are taken away. Do you know what a fence is? A fence is nothing more than a barrier. You separate things with fences. You put them between your property and your neighbor's property. It's a barrier. But in Christ, what does the scriptures tell us? In Christ, all the barriers, the barriers that separated the Jew from the Gentile, the barriers that separated sin from a loving God, all the barriers have been taken away. All of our sins have been removed. They have been deleted. They have been expunged. They have been wiped out. They have been cast into the sea of forgetfulness to never be brought up again. They have been separated as far as the east is from the west. They've all been taken away. I want you to see that almost in, a, in such a forceful, hurricane, tempest-type storm. They've all been caught up and taken away. God does not judge you based on your failures and based on your sins, no matter if they're large or small. What he's doing instead, he's wooing you and he's calling you and he's embracing you and he's extending an invitation for you to come to the table. David said, God prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. If he would go to those lengths, how much more is he going to go to you? You're not an enemy of God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're family. He still prepares the table. And he says, come, come and dine with me. Let's talk about things. I hope you understand. I'm not mad at you. I'm not disappointed in you. How many of you have grown up feeling like you always were disappointing somebody, your mom, your dad, somebody in your family. You were just always a disappointment somehow. God is never that way about you. You are never a disappointment in his eyes, in his heart, ever. 
All of our sins have been taken away in Christ Jesus. Not only have the 613 fences been taken away, but your one million offenses have been taken away also. They've all been expunged. They've all been deleted. You can't get them back, friends. They're gone. All is forgiven. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19, we find these words. Look at what it says. For the law, come on, that's the Ten Commandments, that's ten of them, and then 603 more of them. He says, for the law, this is the mitzvah, this is the whole law. The law made nothing perfect. Do you see that? You're already perfect. The law is not going to make you more perfect. The law made nothing perfect, but he says, but. I love that conjunction because, as I've always said, the but is like the eraser, okay? <laughs> I, I, I want to hang out with you, but. That literally means I don't want to hang out with you. But the law is, <laughs> he says, for the law made nothing perfect, but he doesn't leave us hanging. He says, but the bringing in of a better hope did. The better hope is what made us perfect, by which we draw nigh unto God. I got a question for you, friends. Listen to me carefully. Listen to my heart. If the law made nothing perfect, does it say that? If the law made nothing perfect, why would a believer want to hold on to it? I don't hold on to broken things. I was a drummer in school. And every drum, whether it's a snare drum, the triple tom, the bass drum, they have this skin on it. And you tighten it to get the certain sounds. The one thing I know is when the skin tears, when that drum head tears, it's fit for nothing. You don't hold on to it going, I might need that someday. No. You can't get any sound out of it. Why would believers want to hold on to broken things? If it's broken, it serves no purpose. It has to go. What do believers think the law can do for them? Do they think that the law can stop them from sinning? No, the law will incite you. You tell somebody, no, don't do something. You tell a child, don't do this. And then you go out of the room for just a moment. That little child will be right over there doing exactly what you told them not to do. I don't care what it is. You can set a box, a shoebox on the table and say, you know what? I'm going to be gone for about five minutes. Please do not look in that shoebox while I'm gone. I guarantee it won't be a minute later. That little child will be kind of looking around and he'll come over there. He'll start touching it first. This is the way it works. <laughs> this is the way it works. Start touching it first and then pushing it a little bit. And pretty soon he's got to look. Because he had a law that said, do not touch. And there's just something about it. Wet paint signs is another one of them. I heard the story of a guy who had a greenhouse, and uh, it was a block or two from the school, and kids would walk by it all the time, and nobody disturbed his greenhouse. And then one day he got this bright idea that says, I better put a sign in my yard that says, do not throw rocks at my greenhouse. And he had so many broken windows, it wasn't funny. Now, that's a true story, but do you see what the law does? And yet people are wanting to hold on to this law. 
The scriptures say, for what the law was powerless. Come on. The law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, our flesh. Okay. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, a sin bearer, if you will. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We live according to the spirit, friends. How many of you know the law cannot forgive sin? The law cannot forgive sin. The law cannot justify you. The law cannot declare you innocent. The law cannot make you holy, and the law cannot save you. Now, if you feel like I've said something that's not true, let's talk about it, okay? I know the word pretty good, and I'm telling you, everything I just said there is absolutely true. The law can't do any of that stuff for you. So what is the law for? It's to bring people to Christ. So the law is still alive. The law didn't die, but the law, according to 1 Timothy, is not made for us. He said, we also know that the law is not made for the righteous. You're the righteous. You're the ones who put your trust in Christ. That makes you righteous. The law cannot do any of those things. Do you see the deception that people have believed, that the church has believed, that believers have believed? This would not even be a talking point if believers could see that in the discarding of the a la carte gospel, they would discover a better hope by which they would draw nigh unto God. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 4, we find these words. Look what Paul is writing here. He says, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. I love that verse right there. I really do. It's so powerful. What does it mean to be dead to something? Dead people do not concern themselves with laws. Do you know that? They won't be concerned if the hearse driver speeds on the way to the cemetery. <laughs> they don't worry about paying taxes or their mortgage payments. Why? Because they have been released from the law. So according to that scripture right there, the law was the authority over the man while he lived, before he belonged to Christ. But a man is released from the law when he dies. So I want you to think beyond natural death for just a moment. Because that would be a horrible thing that we'd only be released from the law when we died a natural death. That seems like an empty victory that I struggle all the years and then finally I'm released from the law. No, friends. You died in the body of Christ. You were crucified with Christ. You died with Christ. Get beyond the natural death for a moment. Think about the spiritual death here. We died in the body of Christ. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, it says, having canceled the written code of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. 
He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That is Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. In Romans chapter 6, in verse 14, I was telling Valerie this morning, if there's one scripture that I don't know how you can look at and still see the law as some sort of helper, it's this one here. It says, For sin shall no longer be your master. That is the same word that he used for authority. Authority and master, same exact Greek word. For sin shall no longer be your authority, your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Come on. That's a shouting scripture, buddy. You are no longer under the law, but under grace. I don't know of a scripture in the Bible that is more explicit than that scripture in terms of conveying to the believer that they are no longer under the law, yet the majority of believers will look that scripture square in the face and still not dismount from their law-indoctrinated fence. They'll just go, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, I've showed it to people. Yeah, 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 I know. Like Valerie was saying this morning to me, she was saying, what's taught is that you're released from the ceremonial law. No, this is the whole law, friends. You're released from all the law. The law was part of the old covenant. And what did he do with the old covenant? He made it obsolete. And he made the law obsolete with it. He did. For you are no longer under the law, but under grace. So let me ask you a question. Are you still straddling the noncommittal fence? Is that where you're at right now? Can't decide. I like the law over here. I like grace over here. Do you stubbornly refuse to commit to grace and forsake the law? Can't you see that in the discarding of the a la carte gospel, you will discover the starting block of entering into his rest? What can the law do for you? I want you to answer that question. What is it you think the law can do for you? Now, we've already covered a few verses. It can't make you righteous. Hebrews says it can't make you perfect. We covered that part. We covered the scripture where it says you're dead to the law and you're no longer under the law. So what is it that we think that the law can do for us? The scriptures tell us that before faith came, we were under a formula. That means a law. It was a formula, if you will. And it says held prisoners by the law. Now, that's what the law did, is it held you as a prisoner. How many of you would like to be in prison? I don't want to be in prison. It said the law held you in prison, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Justified means declared righteous, declared innocent that we might be justified by faith and not a formula. And now that faith has come, it says we are no longer under the supervision of the law. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you're straddling a fence. Can you get that in your mind just a moment? 
Now, we're going to put some objects on each side of the fence for you in just a second. But I want you to get over the fence first of all. You got that? You're straddling the fence? Now, to one side of the fence, you've got crocodiles. And on the other side of the fence, you've got a suitcase full of $100 bills and a chauffeur waiting to take you and the money away. Now, let me ask you this question. What side of the fence would you like to get off on? Come on. You don't need boots that bad, do you? Come on. I mean, that's a ridiculous thought, though, isn't it? I mean, nobody would take an hour even to think about what they wanted to do. I wish that it was just as easy for believers to choose between law and grace. I do. That they could see something so explicitly, they go, well, that's just over with. But remember that indoctrination is a powerful thing. What you've been taught, what you've been trained, builds a stronghold. It builds a vocabulary inside of you. It builds a way of seeing things inside of you. And it's a hard thing to tear down. Now, if the crocodile in the suitcase, full of $100 bills, were on the same side of the fence, then it's over with, friends. The crocodile can have the money. It's over with. <laughs> Why? Because it's too dangerous to tread near crocodiles. You ever watch how fast they are? They come up out of the drinking hole and grab an animal. That, I mean, they're just lightning fast. It's too dangerous to tread near crocodiles. And so it is with the law. It's dangerous to tread, I'm talking about in your mind now, near the law, you say, Pastor Mark, can you give me an example of what you mean by it's dangerous to tread near the law? I just had a Facebook friend reach out to me a couple days ago from another country. He's been a recent acquaintance on Facebook. I want you to take a look at his question to me. This is what he wrote to me. He says, how can we be free from religious guilts? How can we have a free relationship with God without must-dos or obligations? He's under the bondage of the law, the do's and the don'ts. And he's asking the question from a distant country, how, how in the world do we get free from this guilt? And my heart of compassion wants to respond to people like that. Because I want you to know, inner pain can be even tougher to deal with than exterior pain, physical pain. Emotional pain can just wreck a person. It just puts you in knots constantly. I've been there in different ways throughout my life when my daddy would leave my mama and we'd be left with mama and no daddy and then go with daddy now you don't have mama and when you go to a foster home now you don't have your siblings. I know when we got beaten as kids and stuff. I was there. It happened to me. I'm not sour about this. I've gotten over this, folks. I've gotten healed from all this nonsense that happened in my life. But I understand this emotional guilt, this emotional pain. And there are millions, multiplied billions of people out there that are dealing with it. This guy is just real enough to reach out and say, how can we be free? He doesn't even just say, how can I get rid of? He said, how can I be free from religious guilt? You notice how he ties the guilt to religious stuff? 
This was my response to him. I said, we are set free from guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation through a correct understanding of the gospel. And then I sent him stuff to listen to. Can you put together anything shorter than that that would make sense? Oh, you could get all religious. Well, you know, you know, just understand God's love for you. You can't understand God's love until you have a correct understanding of the gospel. It starts there. That your foundation is about Jesus plus nothing. I can trust him. If you happen to be on the fence that runs between the pasture and the prison, the meadow and the moat, the crocodile and the chauffeur, it has been my desire that this series will help people to decide which side of the fence they want to live their remaining years on. Heaven's a guarantee. Heaven's a certainty. Nothing can change that if you're a believer. But what side do you want to live on? Did you know that straddling the fence is not just a new covenant issue, not just a new covenant problem? In 1 Kings, we see the showdown between Elijah and King Ahab and his 450 prophets of Baal. And prior to their showdown, King Ahab met with Elijah. And you know, the first thing he did is he called him a name. He said to him, you're the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler. You're the one making trouble for Israel. Why would he call him a name like that? Because Elijah's viewpoint of God was very different, very different than Ahab's. You see, Jezebel had already won her husband Ahab over to her God, the God of Baals. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 18 through 21, we find these words. Elijah spoke these words to King Ahab. He said, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You're the ones. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet with me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the children of Israel and said, look at these words, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, Follow him. Now look at these next words. I put them in bold letters for you there. But the people said nothing. These are God's people. When I stand in this pulpit, I'm here to say something. I'm here to say something that will set you free. Elijah's 
greatest challenge was not King Ahab. It was not Jezebel. It was not the 450 prophets of Baal. The most difficult challenge that Elijah faced was in dealing with the Israelites, God's chosen people. You see, the Israelites, you know what they were doing? They were straddling the fence. They had one foot in God's kingdom, and they had the other foot in Ahab's kingdom. They had too much to fear to forsake God completely, but they were also terrorized by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. They had been convinced. See, this is what doctrine does. It convinces people. They had been convinced to rely upon the God of Baal to supply them with rain, wind, and fertility, rather than relying upon God, the author, the creator of all things. Isn't that amazing that they could exchange that over time? That's the slow drip thing I'm talking about. And it works both ways. Here's these people that are committed to God. They go live in the land and King Ahab comes into power. And then Jezebel convinces him that Baal is a better God. He's the God of rain and wind and fertility. And this is what our people need. And then that message began to drip into the hearts of the Israelites. In an effort to appease the king and the queen, the Israelites had embraced the religion of the Baals. So, what was the Israelites' response? When Elijah asked the question, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you vacillate? How long will you straddle the fence? Their response is recorded in the scriptures. The people said nothing. Friends, this is where the church, the body of Christ, gets hung up at times. They've grown up with a certain doctrine. And when they hear excerpts, maybe they hear excerpts, if you will, of the finished work message, it's the Mount Carmel showdown all over again because it challenges. That's what took place on Mount Carmel. There was a challenge. There was a battle. And people begin fearing things. They fear losing their family and friends. Some fear losing their influence and their invitations. And I have watched that happen. When they would normally have been invited to conferences because you thought like us, you preached about a certain subject, but you got over into this finished work message and suddenly you watch as they disappear from the landscape. Watch this closely enough, you'll see that that happens. So they fear losing their influence. They fear losing their invitations. Still others fear losing their soul. They fear losing their salvation. Friends, I got over that fear a long, long time ago. If I never get an invitation to go anywhere and preach the rest of my life, and I only get to preach to you, I'm absolutely, totally at peace with that. I'm totally satisfied because it's never been about influence and invitations. It's been about resting in Christ, resting in Him. Now, 
As I round the corner and head into the home stretch, do you know what I can see in the distance? I can see the checkered flag waving. And as I bring this series across the finish line, let's make our case for grace one last time by defining the hybrid gospel. The hybrid gospel is the gospel that adds anything except faith to Jesus' finished work on the cross. If you add anything but faith, it's a hybrid gospel. Faith is not only okay to add to Jesus' finished work on the cross, but faith is essential. Grace is apprehended by faith. The scriptures say, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If one adds muscle to Jesus' finished work, you know, that's the stuff you do. If you add muscle to Jesus' finished work as your means of salvation, that's a hybrid gospel. If one adds mind power, you know I'm talking about things like rhetoric. I'm talking about things like philosophy. I'm talking about just your opinion. If you add mind power to Jesus' finished work on the cross, that is a hybrid gospel. (laughs) If one adds money, in other words, they feel like they can buy their way by doing good things for people. I'm not opposed to that, but if you think that's going to get you in someday, that is a hybrid gospel. We cannot add a monetary value to what Jesus has done for us through his nail-scarred hands and feet. That's a hybrid gospel. The book of Acts tells us that when Simon the sorcerer saw that the Spirit was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands. You know what he did? He offered them money. He said, give me this power, give me this gift, so that I too can lay hands on people so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter looked at him, and this was his answer. He said, may your money (laughs) perish with you because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. I'm telling you, money can't do it. Muscle can't do it. Mind power can't do it. Money can't do it. Now you say, Mark, boy, these are some extreme examples now. They're extreme. I don't know of anyone who has put their trust in such nonsensical means for salvation. Really, because I do. Have you ever heard of someone said again that they're heaven bound because their good deeds have outweighed their bad deeds? You've heard that. That's putting your faith in something other than Christ alone. I've met hundreds of people over the years that have said this, not just one or two, not just a dozen, hundreds, hundreds of people that have said this. Many people have trusted in their own muscle. They've trusted in their own mind power. And they've trusted in their own money. All of these things speak of self-effort. And all of these things are destined to fail. But there's still one that gets overlooked. It's a bit disguised. It's a little hidden. The more subtle one than muscle, mind power, and money. It's mixture. 
That's the one that gets overlooked. I'm talking about a mixture of law and grace. And if one adds the old covenant law to Jesus' finished work of grace, then it will become a counterfeit gospel, a diluted gospel, a gospel that is no gospel at all. It is called a hybrid gospel. A mixture of law and grace is where a big portion of the church has put her faith, her trust, all their performance, their obedience to the law. They have hedged their bet through obedience to the law and have not fully trusted in Jesus' finished work on the cross. And unbeknownst to them, their breadcrumbs of grace are daily eaten by the ravens of religion. And now they just can't seem to find their way through life. They can't find their way out of the forest. You see, when law and grace are mixed together, it becomes nothing more than a hybrid gospel, an a la carte gospel, a straddling the fence gospel, a gospel that Jesus did not shed his innocent blood to give us a gospel that is no longer good for anything. Adding to Jesus' finished work as the means of co-signing one's salvation is like filling your salt shaker with sand and then encouraging your dinner guests to sprinkle it on their food. How many of you would agree with me that that would be a sick joke? Come on, <laughs> that would be a sick joke, wouldn't it? And it's equally sick that the body of Christ is believing that any substitute, any supplement, or any seasoning mixed with Jesus' blood will allow grace to work better or to work equally as well. Friends, it's no more than a fly in the ointment. It's a fly in the perfume, that is all. Friends, we are justified, we are declared innocent, we are made the righteousness of God by Christ and His blood. His blood requires no substitutes, no supplements, and no seasoning. Religion, well, it certainly taught us how to shake, rattle, and roll, didn't it? But it did a poor job in preparing God's sons and daughters to live life and see good days. You see, your dinner guests may go through all the motions. They may shake, rattle, and roll. They may dispense the contents of the shaker, and the sand may even glisten as it comes forth. But in the end, it would only make your dinner guest's food unfit for human consumption. Oh, oh, oh man, it looked good! <laughs> it sounded good! Oh, I felt good! But it ruined the meal. The meal I'm talking about is the meal that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. My final scripture is Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. It says, let your conversation be always full of grace. Overflowing. Abundant. Never running dry. Let your conversation always be full of grace. Conversation at church. Conversation at Olive Garden. Conversation at the Goodwill. Conversation. Let it always, it says, 
Everywhere you go, dispense grace. Let your conversation be full of grace. And then it says, seasoned with salt, not sand, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That's why we meet, friends. We meet so that we can put things in your heart, so that when you're out there in the real world, your conversation can be full of grace, seasoned with salt, pressed down, shaken together, running over into people's hearts and lives. I've got a couple of questions for you in closing. How does our conversation become full of grace? I want that, don't you? Is it merely through increasing our vocabulary? Well, if that's all it is, there's apps for that for your phone, friends. Does our conversation become more gracious as we practice our little religious flashcards? How can our light penetrate the dark hearts of this world? I want that, don't you? I mean, what is this all about if we're not here to influence those dark hearts with the gospel? What is this about? Is this practice for heaven? No, we're going to be changed in heaven. And how can our words become seasoned with salt? Is it by adding more muscle? How about more mind power? How about throwing more money at it? Is it by adding more mixture to it? No. No, friends, no. <laughs> that recipe is unfit for human consumption. We become dispensers of salt and light, grace and truth, as we allow the finished work of Jesus Christ and this gospel of grace to help others dismount from straddling the fence of law and grace and by discarding the a la carte gospel. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Sadly, there are many believers that will never find their way out of the forest of fear and condemnation. Would you like to know why that is? It's because the breadcrumbs of grace continue to be eaten by their religious ravens. I'm talking about breadcrumbs that have been formulated and fortified with graces to refresh our hearts in Christ and to bring rest to our wearied souls. Are these believers still God's children, you ask? Yes, of course. Our salvation, whether nourished or neglected, is ours as a gift through the precious blood and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Most of us wouldn't know the first thing about building a fence. Oh, but we've become experts at straddling a fence. Fence straddling is the expression we use for a person who refuses to commit to one while forsaking the other. The one that straddles the fence, you know, he's lending favor to both sides because he doesn't want to upset any apple carts. One of the fences that believers straddle 
is the fence that separates the 613 commandments from the one man, namely Jesus Christ. Why do believers hold on to both? Why would you straddle a fence and keep the law on one side and grace on the other side? It's because they are hedging their bet. They want the safety net of the law just in case his grace is insufficient. But that's not what God told the Apostle Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient. They want to hold on to just in case grace runs out, just in case grace fails. Hear the words, once again, from the prophet Elijah. How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you oscillate like a fan? How long will you straddle the fence? Will you speak up? Or will you do as the children of Israel did on Mount Carmel and remain silent? Friends, the law, though it be good, and it is, and though it be holy, and it is, and though it be righteous, and it is, it is no longer useful for the believer. Get that in your heart today. You have the Holy Spirit. I know it's a hard thing to shake. We went through the scriptures. The law makes nothing perfect. Jesus makes perfect. And the law was not made for the righteous. We were made the righteousness of God in him. Believers are dead to the law. Believers are no longer under the law. Believers have been released from the law. And Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. Believers do not possess a hybrid confession booth a la carte, pay as you go for each sin individually, salvation. All of our sins were taken away by the one man, Jesus Christ. Friends, you can trade your post hole digger for a chainsaw. The fence will no longer be necessary. The psalmist David would write these words in Psalm 20. He would say, some trust in chariots, and some trust in horses, but he said, I've come by today to tell you that I trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, David, even under an old covenant, come on, we've got a better covenant, but David had a revelation of God's heart, and he said, you might trust in horses, you might trust in chariots, you might trust in the 613 laws, but I've come by today to tell you I trust in the name, in the validation, in the authority of the Lord, our God. Not just my God, our God, he said. And I would say to you, some trust in their muscle, some trust in their mind power, some trust in their money, and still others are trusting in this mixture of covenants for their salvation, not only coming in, but to stay in. And each of these objects, whether physical or imaginative, add nothing to Christ's finished work. They had nothing. Muscle, mind power, money and mixture are merely fences. And they will remain fences in a believer's life until they succumb to death. But 
Remember what I said about but? It's the eraser. Let's get rid of that succumb to death stuff there, okay? But I have a better hope for you by which we draw nigh unto God. Your absolute freedom can begin today. You say, Pastor Mark, where do I start? Where do I start? Friends, the starting block for the freedom that I have been speaking about begins by discarding the a la carte, pay-as-you-go gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for your word. This has been more than a series. This has been a cornerstone to build every future message upon. There's been so much liberty, so much freedom. As I look back across the timeline, beginning with the marginalized gospel of grace, forsaking the hybrid gospel, the breadcrumbs of grace, mixture, the fuel source of condemnation, all I can say is thank you. But even as the friend that wrote me said, how do I get out from underneath? How do I become free from this religious guilt? It begins with a correct understanding of the gospel. And that is so true. Daddy, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. That has never been my heart. Whether you're a saint or a sinner, I love you the same. But I know what sets a man free. And too many people within the body of Christ have straddled the fence. They're unwilling to make up their mind to forsake the hybrid gospel, to forsake the law. And as a result, they stay stuck. They can't find their way out of the forest. And even though you're dropping the breadcrumbs of grace to lead them out into a place of milk and honey, a place of safety, they allow the religious ravens to come and eat them in their place. Father, my prayer is that you will begin to just amplify the voices of those that are preaching this message, the true gospel of grace. And we will watch such an influx of people shaken off their religious guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation and resting in your hands, Daddy. I praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, 
triumphant grace to you. God bless you.